Recording tape number 15 to the 12th Annual Santa Barbara Writers Conference. This evening's guest lecturer is Dr. David Viscott. It's rather fitting, I think, that after the week that we've had, that we should provide you with a psychiatrist. It's the first time that we have included this in our, in our program, this, this feature. But it seems to me that it is more than fitting. Uh, some of you have been through intense creative experiences. Some have been through intense literary experiences. Some have been through intense experiences. <laughs> Whatever it is, uh, no other writers' conference that I have ever heard of in the United States provides psychiatric help. For, for its students. Uh, I am not personally involved in this because I can tell you that anyone who gets involved in the administration and management of a writer's conference is beyond psychiatric help. Uh, I am a recent David Viscott addict, uh, and I'll tell you in, in a capsule how all this came about. Uh, Originally, we had scheduled Alex Haley for tonight. Alex Haley's schedule uh, got a little messed up, and he finally said, I can come Sunday. And he did, as you know, and uh, was charming. Uh, now we are looking for, we're sitting at lunch one day, and we're looking for a, someone that we can ask for the Thursday night spot. Penny Davies, our demon bookseller outside, said to me, um, why don't you see if you can get David Viscott? And I said, what are David Viscott's? Uh, 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 and um, she said, only uh, one of my best-selling authors. He's got like 12, 14 books in print, uh, a Pulitzer nomination. He's a practicing psychiatrist. Uh, he does a radio shrink show, which has uh, everyone talking. And uh, I began to do a little research. I began to talk to people, and I found that... Um, uh, it, all of that was true. Uh, he does have all those books out. He does have all those commendations. He is a successful practicing psychiatrist. And I, out of nowhere, called him at the radio studio. And, and the intention being uh, to introduce myself and invite him. I did not know at the time that he and my oldest son, who was here with me on Sunday, had become good friends. So when I left a message uh, at the studio asking Dr. Viscott when he got off the air to please call, what is my name? Uh, uh, please call Paul Lazarus. He, he did call uh, very, very shortly afterwards and said, hello, Paul, this is David. And I thought, that's, that's interesting considering I, don't, uh, considering I don't know him. Uh, but I said, hello, David, how are you? And, uh, uh, we got along just fine until it came out that he thought he was talking to my son. Uh, but we cleared that up. I did ask him to come, uh, and he agreed, much to my surprise, and he is here. We also found, when we announced to the public in Santa Barbara that David Viscott was coming, that the phone began ringing off the hook. Uh, apparently, Santa Barbarans... Uh, know about Ray Bradbury and Alex Haley and Alice Adams and Bernice Kurt, uh, but it did not strike the nerve and create the uh, automatic telephonic reaction uh, that the announcement of David Viscott's coming did. Uh, and I'm delighted to see so many uh, of our 
students and also so many new faces here tonight. And is a great tribute, not alone to the fact that uh, people do read the local newspapers and uh, listen to the local radio, but also to the fact that uh, David Viscott has an audience in Santa Barbara who are fascinated with what he does on the air and are fascinated with an opportunity to meet and talk with him firsthand. Uh, I have become a recent addict. I, because I had never heard him on the radio, I'm not much at, on uh, soap operas or uh, noontime radio or that kind of business, but I made a point of listening and I'm hooked. And I can't wait until he gets on the air tomorrow and uh, uh, by that time I will have ended the morning session, I can assure you, and I will go home and listen to uh, what he does with his telephone callers because the great charm of his show, and I'm, I'm not trying to crab your act, David, really, I'm talking around it. Uh, the great charm of his show is that he takes no nonsense from the people who call him with their problems. Uh, if he thinks they're wrong, if he thinks they have screwed up their lives, he tells them that directly and head on. And if they don't listen to it, he goes on to the next person. Uh, <clears throat> so that it's a very forthright, very direct, very courageous, very interesting technique. I frankly don't know what he has chosen to talk about tonight. I do know that uh, after whatever presentation he wishes to make, he will answer questions. Uh, he, I think it's up to him whether he answers questions about his writing techniques or his greeting card techniques or whether you want to ask him about some of your personal problems. Uh, I think in any event he will be willing to answer anything you want to ask. I haven't fired Jan Curran tonight yet, but um, uh, I think since it's our final night and this is the final issue of Right On, uh, I will not fire her tonight. I will ask for a round of applause for her. She has made a great contribution with that. And now uh, that's enough of me. You've heard me all week. May I present to you our guest of the evening, uh, writer, psychiatrist, greeting card magnet, uh, man of many, many talents, Dr. David Viscott. You don't look like you either. I knew you were going to be easy, but this is ridiculous. Um, I'm going to talk about um, process. And I'm going to invite you to participate um, in any way you like. And what I'm going to talk about is very, very critical to the gift we have, discovering it, being whole in the giving and returning of it, and also developing a self-esteem that you can count on so that in those low points in your creative process when you're working, you don't need to become desperate that it's all run out. You can begin to accept yourself and coast through it. Creating is the loneliest job in the world 
But then again, it's the only job in the world. Everything else, you know, is just janitorial. Everything you see in front of you is the product of someone's creation, of someone taking a risk, of someone saying, I have an idea, and no one I'm believing them, and the only thing they have going for them is the notion. The notion is everything. The notion lives in you as a very faint voice, which occurs pretty much all the time. But because of problems that we have in believing in ourselves, our worthiness in accepting what we hear, and our courage in setting out what has come through us as an idea, and attaching our own personality to it rather than simply accepting ourselves as the vessel through which the idea came, we have doubts about ourselves and we inhibit the voice. But everything you see, the lights, the fabric, the designs, the jewelry you're wearing, the shape of your hair, the chemicals that went into it, everything is the creation. <laughs> you're faster than most of the people I talk to. I often wonder, you know, I, I'm, I, I, what I do in my process is really what I encourage you to do. Perhaps I should share a tiny bit of what I do on the ear because it's the most naked part and the part that you're most familiar with. Um, without getting into an egotistical history of how it all happened, let it just be said that someone thought I would do well on the air and offered me a replacement spot. And I went and I did it. God, it was awful. It was awful for a couple of reasons. Um, I precipitated a fight with my wife, awful, before each show. Uh, this was three, four, five years ago, five years ago. And, and I was in the worst possible shape possible that you could imagine to go out and do the show. And so I had a good excuse for not doing well. You are, that, that should ring familiar to all of you. And I did a show. And I did not like it. I mean, I felt there were moments of brilliance and all that sort of thing that I was attached to. And then the second show was no, was no, was no better. And I decided that there was something there that was possible to happen, but I wasn't willing to risk it. And I thought about it for a year. I was asked to take a spot, and I said no. And after a lot of lunches, which is how you do business in this business, I, I agreed to, to start, and then I realized what it was all about. And it came very quickly, and it came in a sudden flush, and I knew what I had to do. The idea was that I was talking about the center. I was talking about the purpose and meaning of life, and that if I ever was to accomplish a sense of openness to make what I knew I had inside shareable, I had to completely submit to this force and energy that I've been playing around with as a writer for some 10 or 11 books. And while you may think that's impressive, it really isn't because if you don't feel like writing after an hour and a half, you, you can walk the dog, you can raid the refrigerator, I'm good at that. You can go biking, you can do anything you want to do, but if you're on the air and you're trying to be open, 
right after the commercial, you've got to be open again. And the difference between being open and not being open is everything in the world. Because if it isn't happening, it's terrible. And it's the bad feeling. I would like to explain the bad feeling. The bad feeling and the good feeling. There are only two feelings in terms of creative process. When it's working and when it's not. When it's not working, there's a tightness all about you. There's a feeling of it's just awful. You've put down words just to be sure that you had words on that line. They don't belong there, and you didn't have the patience to be, to be um, online to the inner voice. You just acted because of your anxiety. That's the great struggle. I've never had writer's block. Uh, and I've been, uh, been um, uh, gifted with the muse almost at will. It's, it's just been one of those things. But to have to come out and make perfect form, and that's what, what I wanted to do, perfect form, perfect truth, was something that was beyond me. On a given day, in a given moment, I felt I might be able to do it, and with a pen in my hand and the opportunity to rewrite and give me an hour, I'll, I'll knock up a paragraph and read it to you. But that's not what this was about. What I had to do was to be able to create process at will and to make it happen. That is the scariest single thing you can imagine. First of all, the state I'm sharing with you something I've never shared before, incidentally, with, with any group, because I think you need to know this. Because when I'm, this has changed my writing and has made it closer to my center than any, anything before. The first thing that happens is you have to listen, not to ideas, because your ideas are essentially your attempt to create something. You have not to create. You have to receive. That's not a Buddhist philosophy, and it's not metaphysical in any sense of the word. It's merely the metaphor by which this thing we do works. When it works, it just comes out of you, and it happens so quickly that you say, my goodness, I did that. And you almost are willing to take credit for it, but it happened with such alacrity, and you're able to sustain phrases for longer than you usually can, and the balance is there, and it really fits together, and the meaning was deeper than you implied because the meaning was in a sense that was beyond you. And the real writing and the real creative process is a sense that is beyond you. And you're always trying to tap that. Let me tell you what happened. I became very dissatisfied with, with what was happening. I was trying to figure people out. I mean, I was trying to figure people out. I mean, that's what I do. That's what I was trained to do, to figure people out, to figure them out leisurely. I don't think as fast as I needed to think in order to make the thing work. And I think very rapidly. I'm there on my toes at every moment. It was not good. It was not, it was not, I was not in touch with whatever force I was going to make happen for me. And it came to me that what I would have to do, you ready for this, is in front of an open microphone with a four-second delay that I have never pushed. I've vowed my, to myself that I can never push it. My hand is behind my back. I will never push it. If anything happens, it's up to someone else. I'm out there. It's to make my mind a perfect blank and to say whatever comes out of my mouth as I say it without listening to it. 
and let that process take me. I didn't realize exactly how deep that was going. The first thing was to listen and not to listen to the person because that was listening outside but instead of wasting, not wasting the time and hearing what they were saying but listening to my responses to their truth and following that inner voice's ability to tell instantly what was false and what was not false putting myself there as the spokesman for that space between my memory and my perception so that I simply lived off the line of my consciousness being totally present for that moment without intrusion, judgment, self-criticism, self-adulation, caring. I do not care about the person on the other end. That is not to say that I don't love them because I'm filled with this overwhelming, I mean, I cry during calls, I'm overwhelmed, but it, it, it just takes me away. But I don't care about what I am to say. My message is my love. And if I am true to that, in that moment, something happens to me, and when it's over, I do not even feel that, it's, that I, am, I am the person who did it, but it's my style. It's obviously me who said that, but it's me voicing me without getting in the way of me. That is very scary business, but that is the place of process. This is what your life must be dedicated to make happen. Everything in your life has to be focused on creating the scene and the staging for that process of openness to occur at your will. Otherwise, you force it. And when you force it, you have to rewrite it. And when you have to rewrite what's forced, it's not the original message, and you really have to recreate it at that point. And then the other strange thing that happened was that after I would hear actively hear and share the act of hearing, which was my speaking is hearing. The caller would hang up and all of a sudden, after this intensity, there was a moment um, that, that you could count almost a, a, a second in which my mind was totally blank. I didn't know what it was and I, and I b began to sign off. And then one day, a poetic line came across my, my mind which seemed very well formed, so I could risk it. And then I decided that they were occurring all the time at the end. And the summaries that occur are totally unthought out. I do not have any idea of whether there will be one, or whether it's coming, or what its shape will be. And sometimes afterwards, you know, I, I'll, I'll get a response from, from crew that it, was, that, would, that it was decent, and I'll be trying, uh, well, you know, they've, they've seen everything, right? And, and, uh, and I'll try to write the thing down, and it's gone. I don't have it. And I'll, I'll ask them, what did, I, what did I say? And I'm always um, struck with the thing. And I stopped listening to my, to my production because I no longer wanted to be in any way the person who was viewing the thing that I was doing. I cannot listen to my own programs anymore. About a year ago, I, I listened to a, a program and I got so intimidated by that person on the tape, wondering if I could be like that, that it, it so scared me that I didn't want to hear it anymore, okay? I'm telling you a piece of truth that's very hard fought ground. I mean, I have had 
the experience. You know, I once wrote a book in 13 days and had it published two, two, two or three weeks later, and you know, you think you're, you think you're everything, and it was nothing. I mean, you walked around believing I was something. You know how you can believe you're something? But the importance is to understand, and I say this with as much love as I can give to you, is that you have to understand really that you're not, but your energy is everything. And if you can allow that energy simply to be present for you and do the work, you get paid very well, and it does the work, and there's no drain on you. You're present for the energy, and you master the skills that you do afterwards. You know, all oh, this belongs here, and that sentence, oh, it's a dog. You, 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 learn, you learn how to shape that stuff, but the main thing is to be present for that energy and let it manifest. You are in receipt of a gift. Your life quest is to define that gift in your own giving. That is the only way the gift gets defined. You don't search for it, you keep on giving it. And eventually, people, people will respond back. I would much rather be writing music, I'll tell you. But uh, no one ever said, play it again, Dave. <laughs> it's a, a wonderful thing that you have to lose the belief in your own specialness in order to do special work. And you're looking at the biggest ego in the Western world, maybe next to Werner Earhart. And, <laughs> but I've got it under control now, thank God, and I can look myself in the mirror. But the ego finally only gives me courage now and doesn't get in my way. At least most of the time it doesn't get in my way. And I'm pleased to know when it does. But your ego that gives you the strength to attempt the climb is not going to find your footing on the rough terrain. The footing has to be like walking. It has to come naturally as, as, as easily as air. Your life, in order to have meaning, must be in constant search of not what you can do, but what you can give through this process. I do not discriminate. I, must, I, I work on... I think 20 different things at a time. And um, I have a wonderful storage system so that I never need to know where anything goes. I work on a, a word processor. They said, you'd want to know all this technical stuff, so I'm going to tell you this stuff. And I have disks which I can instantly access any part of, of my creativity and simply store and, and, and collect. And a lot of the time, if stuff is coming through, I just let it come through and I store it. I don't think about it, sometimes for years. But I just allow process to ripen. I believe in that. I believe that sometimes an idea is only an idea for a bit. And it takes years for it to ripen. And in that process of ripening, what is really ripening is your opening to allow the rest of the thing to come through. We don't think in complete ideas. We think in notions. A notion is just the... Um, I remember I was treating a composer who's, who d was describing a notion as a clarinet and an oboe passing each other, one going up and one going down. I, I, just, I just heard that. That's a notion. And he designs that particular thing of his theme for those two voices to do that at that point, and he works it out and makes it happen, but how it's going to work out works out itself in the creativity. 
We don't know what the notion is going to lead us to, but what we need to do is we need to send the notion within. The verb intend, to intend, is the active verb of the mind. If I have my hand over here and I want to raise it, I have to send an intention from my brain down through the tracks, out the spinal cord nerve, down the nerve of the arm, to the muscles. I'm doing it now, but I'm not intending it. See? And until I intend, the thing doesn't move. You know? It's a miracle. But the real miracle, and it's the reason why I have trouble with your diet, why you have trouble making the phone call, why you have trouble being open about your feelings with the person you love, is because you don't really intend to succeed, you don't really intend to do, you intend to observe the process, but you don't intend to allow the process take you. I did it, see? Applause, anything, terrific. The word to intend takes the form of allowing the notion to be sent within you, much as you take a rock and you throw it into the still pond of your mind and allow the reverberations through your life experience to create a disturbance which then has the imprint of your particular um, cognitive stamp and you trust that without judging it. You just, uh, you're just pleased to see its reflection come out so that to properly to properly um, create a, I split an infinitive then, <laughs> to, to create properly a, um, what I did was exactly what's wrong, you see. It doesn't make any difference. But what I did is I made a judgment. And the judgment that I made was, was, was partially to, to illustrate the point, because I really don't care about splitting an infinitive when I talk. but but the intention should have been to allow the idea to come through and I let something intrude. The stronger the intention, the more nobly you throw the notion within, the greater the wave of idea and excitation of ideas that are caused and the more open you are to receiving them, the greater accuracy you have in reporting what has been stirred up. The idea, I guess, is to become selfless at the moment of reception and not fight the process. You don't, you, you know, we all have mornings when it, when, it, when it doesn't go great. It's not moving. And instead of getting in a fight about it, you need to accept the fact that if your life is in process, everything is right. If you're writing, you're writing. If you're working, you're working. And if you sit down in front of the typewriter and nothing comes, you just make your mind a blank and you sit there comfortably and you endure it and you wait and when it, and when it starts focusing and gelling together you work but you don't you don't go bananas over it um, I learned patience after some years in this process and once I I had a feeling about a book, and this is, a, all I had was an idea, it was a book about a man and a woman. And I didn't know the man, and I didn't know the woman, but I had a feeling about it all. 
And the feeling was that it was kind of a crazy person, like someone who's been going through a divorce like I was just going through. And, and maybe that's what was, I needed to speak about. But I wasn't sure at all about this. And I sat in front of a typewriter for eight hours a day without writing a word for 10 straight days. That's no break on Saturday and Sunday, just 80 straight hours without writing a single word. And I knew something was there. I just knew something was there. And on the 10th day, <laughs> the, the waters parted and I wrote an 18-page chapter in an hour and uh, a half. It was, it, I, cu I couldn't throw the paper in the time. It, it was just as fast as I'd ever been in, written. And I read the chapter to a friend who said, this is the most off-the-wall thing. It's just great, but it's so sexually perverse and wild what is going on. And I, I said, I have no idea. I don't know this character at all. And I sat down, and um, six weeks later, I had a 650-page manuscript, which, I had, which was estranged to me at the end and had its own life in it. And I just, it was the first time I had ever given into that process. So what I'm saying to you is really a, a very basic, simple thing. You need to trust that it's for real. You need to trust that whatever stage you are in the process, it's still for real. And that um, sometimes it takes years to do the one, the two, or the three things that you're going to do. And we all make mistakes, and out of desperation we, we find someone who's willing to give us a contract or who, or as the publisher Peter Wyden once said to me, I don't know what's, what's wrong with you, David, but uh, here's a book with a title I can get a reprint sale on, Total Sex, something like this. <laughs> he was dead serious, of course. And um, he, he, he says, just come up with a title, you know, with your credentials. Um, you know, I'll get you $25,000. This was when $25,000 was $15,000. <laughs> you know, devastatingly um, alluring and, and seductive people in the business. I mean, everyone wants to do things for you. And, and you, in desperation, you say, the truth is, I can't do any better. I, 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 this, I've, I've got to go with it. And you become panicky, and you enter a world filled with people whose life is built around handling and managing and screwing panicky people. <laughs> Make no mistake about it, they love their work. They're not even jealous of you. They think you're a child. And they want to manipulate you because they like playing with you like a toy. And when you are desperate and you don't believe in yourself, you are a toy. You're not to be taken seriously. And they laugh about you behind your back. And they, and they, they do the worst, most horrible things. And they put you into deals that they can make that don't have anything to do with whether or not they're good for you or whether or not they're in your ultimate best interest. And as for shaping your career, what's a career? <laughs> I mean, what's a career? They don't know from a career. A career is someone who's done it over and over again on their own who, who, who won't 
play ball with them the way they want to. That's a career. But if they can manipulate you and tell you, here's an article for Collier's, which you still think is in press because it's where you've been reading, and they can control just about every part of you. So your weakness and your lack of ability to accept process is also the force that permits you to be manipulated by people. And it isn't that they're bad people. It's not. I mean, they're doing you a service. If you don't have faith in yourself, they could, they could sell long uh, suede gloves to the other person as well as your manuscript. So they're doing you a favor because you can't sell your own manuscript. You don't believe in it. And at the moment the other person says, Oh, I mean, it's been done. You're, 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 you're thinking, who saw my manuscript? No one saw it. No one cares. If that's the whole thing you have to understand is that no one cares. No one is supposed to care. Your job is to do something that touches people freely, where in the giving of your gift, other people stand in receipt of it and are warmed by it because suddenly someone out there knows them and is responding to you. What do you think? Irma Bombeck doesn't know that she's not the greatest writer in the English language? On two weeks royalty, you can retire. I mean, she's fabulous, but what is she responding to? She's responding to other people's loneliness and their need to know that they're not crazy for hating their kids and wanting to, to put them in a closet and brick them up. <laughs> it's very reassuring to know that we all want to do that. And I don't care what Susan Ford tells you, that's not child abuse. <laughs> the only gift that's worthy of you is yourself. And the only gift you have to give is the gift of yourself. And the only gift that will last is the gift of yourself. And the only way you'll cheat death is to give yourself away. You can play it safe, and you can sit back and um, get a great computer, learn basic, some foolishness like that, and a, and, a, and a best quality printer, and you can make your manuscripts look super, and uh, you can get a hot agent to produce the thing and run around and schlep you around and finally make a deal where you come in the back door. You know what the back door is. Oh, you can have Harold, but you got to take so-and-so. So-and-so? Who is so-and-so? You'll love this kid. I, you know, 1,500 copies is all I want to see out of this. So, we won't do any promotion. Well, I'll tell you, we'll do minimal promotion. No promotion. I'll put it in, but it's part of the deal, and it comes from on top. And there are all these crazy deals, and you don't know they're going around. But if you don't give of yourself, you're always a throwaway because you're unimportant if you don't give of yourself. If you don't give of yourself, if you're not you, what, what are you? I mean, what, what do you create? You create a false identity, and you can sell it, and you can get by with it, and, and, and some people will, 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 will think something of it, but you stay forever lost. The idea is not to, is not to die. Is to, the man who made this, this uh, light bulb, um, although we think it's Edison, it's really Nikola Tesla, um, is still alive. I mean, the person who found out how to make veneer is still alive. They're all here. They're all among us. And the question is, are we going to be among the next generation? Let alone, will there be one? That's not a joke. Please don't laugh. It would get me really upset if you did. And I'll tell you what I'm struggling with. I don't want to get heavy because you guys, it's the end of you. You're weak. But you know, I've wanted to write music more than anything in this world. 
I, I was talented. I was writing string quartets when I was 14. My father says, oh my God, my doctor, was, is gonna, I'm going to lose my doctor. What will I do? My mother said, leave the boy alone. <laughs> <sighs> and um, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, I got, got a, a conservatory education after I was an MD and after I finished my residency and I started writing and doing all that, that stuff. But it occurred to me, you know, if I live to be a thousand, if I live to be two thousand, no matter what I had, I could never ever even approach the, the, the faintest remnant of, of, of Beethoven's discarded music. I mean, the Manzi, R. Schubert, almost that, those people were just uh, uh, ridiculous. But they wrote their music, I believe, for me. I, you, you don't need to exist, any of you for them to have justified what they did. I am enough of an audience, and I love them enough for all of you combined. They wrote that for me. I mean, I knew all Beethoven symphonies by heart when I was nine years old, thank you very much. And I mean, they are with me forever. I mean, we don't need anyone. I am their direct descendant. I am here to, to tell you that that's what my job is. Knowing that, I have to keep faith with my friends. I want there to be a generation after me that can still hear that music. And there has never been a time where that thought was in question except for our age. We are the only people who live in that time. That's the only question before the house. There is no other question. And the real reason I'm doing most of what I'm doing has to do with my absolute, undying conviction that I must do this. My job is perfectly clear to me. I'm going to tell you what it is. My job is to give the gift of understanding to everyone I come in contact with, to help them open up and become their best self so that they can take the world that they are center of and make it wonderful. And hopefully that other people can, like little droplets of mercury, come together and form a bigger world. Not that I have anything to do with that, but that's my job. It's also your job. And the feeling about all this, the transcendent feeling that is that if we do not rise at this time to the suppression of our own personal ego and self, and come to a belief that we are all that higher force encapsulated within each of us and we are nothing else but like a giant organic body, each one of us containing life, each one of us surviving from the beginning of all life, from previous life, and have that ultimate obligation to see it through and to embody everything we do with the spirit and joy and celebration of that force and to make other people aware of its preciousness and the obligation of each of us to be clear in our feelings by not having our feelings tainting our work and process so that we can work with deliberation, intention, and with an overpowering love that really should, you should be in tears part of the day with the giving of your soul. This is not religious. This is not metaphysical. This is the life force that is our gift that we stand on the threshold of losing. And if we do not, all of us, reach out through the gift that we have all received 
to share that knowing in a way that makes other people aware of their own knowing, then we have, in a major way, failed. If you think about it, we're all ready to go there. I mean, think of all the things that have survived. Only the good survives, you know? I mean, we're not wearing Adolf Hitler sweatshirts and it's only 40 years. If you, th you know, you stand in the flush of a Bellini um, aria and you're, you're, you're taken away. Something, you are part of the energy of the, of the whole creation, captured as one person has given into it and recaptured their experience to share with us. And if you can capture your experience and in so doing validate the experience of being most human, most real, the life force is captured with everyone who participates in it with you, and we have a greater opportunity to save the world that we're in. The process of each one of our lives, therefore, must reiterate the whole process of creation. And each of us must become the God force, or we are nothing. Because we are either all of that, or we are charlatans to our own creativity and bear false witness to our highest selves. I suppose it comes from the very simplest concept of all, which is coming from love. And giving whatever you feel when you come from love to whoever you happen to be with, that doesn't mean not standing up for your rights as a human being, not articulating the pain of the moment, but being free enough to know and give the benefit of the doubt to other people in appreciating that ultimately we will all get to that better place if we each show the example by our giving in love. I'm not sure what I'm doing in this place right now. Um, the process, the ultimate process, when you think of Van Gogh, um, is to be so in tune with that act of giving that you give till there's nothing left. The first time I, I, I'd always appreciated Van Gogh from a distance. I didn't know what it was all about. I, mostly I'd seen the prints. You know, you see the sunflowers in prints. They're okay. There was the retrospective, that fabulous exhibit that toured about 20 years ago. And I saw it at the um, Boston Museum of Fine Arts. I was doing cancer research at the time, and m my lab partner said, you, you must see this. And we went to it. It was Van Gogh. I, I, and I went from, it was in chronological order. I did not know anything about the man. And then we came to, finally, after two hours, to a room where there were three enormous landscapes and a huge landscape with crows in it. I had never seen this thing before. But I stood in front of it, and suddenly, I was moved to overwhelming tears. I mean, I can barely hold it. And I just stood there for an hour, crying in the middle of the, the museum, as if all of a sudden I was in touch with everything that was, and all of this man's eye and heart had been summed up when I was told that he killed himself right after the, the completing that that landscape. I, I was uncontrollable. And I couldn't work for about a week. I went back one more time. It was more than I could handle the second time. It was like I was being told some terrible story about my own parents that I, I never wanted to know. Or some terrible secret about what life was really about. The man never sold a painting. 
I mean, we, we, no matter what happens to you, I mean, to be, to be the, 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 one of the numbered geniuses of all time in your medium and never to have sold a painting, like Franz Schubert. I mean, he never had a major concert in his life. The man lived his whole life, his entire life, he lived in a town the size of Worcester, Massachusetts. He and Beethoven spent their whole life contemporaneously in the same time, and they never met. In his whole life, he struggled uh, with, with such self-wracking doubt that three months before his death, he, he went to the cantor at St. Stephen's Church and virtually begged to be accepted for counterpoint lessons because he thought that's what was missing in the music. The condition of the process is doubt. The work is the reaffirmation of the belief, not merely in the self, but in all existence. It is a singular and lonely act, my friends. And one that, even though you come here to share it, it doesn't work. This, this co the, the conference, if it, ca if it was to reassure you that you are all right, is a failure. Because that only comes in the moment of knowing and looking, not in an assignment, not in some um, boasting or telling what you've, you've accomplished. It comes 3.30 in the morning when something finally works out and, it, and it, you look at it and you say, you dare to think, you say, I'm better than I thought I was. And in that one moment, you get that incredible feeling that you can go higher. It is the reaching. It is that moment when you believe that in you is the nobility of all creation, and in feeling that, you become one with everyone else who has done it, even though you may not be the, the same quality, the same, the same um, genius, you are one with them, and in that moment, you are part of the whole energy that drives the force of the universe. And in giving into that expression, your work takes on a value beyond you. And whether anyone even sees it again is unimportant. The only thing that matters is that you have tapped in, and like losing your virginity, you know something you didn't know before. And what you know is that there is something on the other side. And that something on the other side is a you that believes in yourself, knowing you have worth.
That belief, like dust on your hand on a summer's day, being blown away, leaves a very shallow print. It's hard to hold that memory, like the pain of childbirth, so I'm told. It's ephemeral, but there's some aspect of the knowing that transforms you forever. We seek it. All the metaphors of, the, of, of, the, of all religion, you know, the, the Bible is the story of creation. It is a metaphor for how each of us progresses in our own emotional and um, philosophical awareness. It's just a metaphor. Whether you want to believe any of the elements or not, it's the story of how one sacrifices one's being in the mass of all of us to become one with all of us and save all of us. Each of us must become the savior of our own world as we see it. Because to tell you the truth, when I leave here, you know, none of you exist anymore. And when you leave here, no one else does. So we do carry our own world. Let us rule it, therefore, in the light of our best selves and create that world in the belief of a better self ever coming and being one with us. That's the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> One of the difficult things about, <coughs> about not knowing what you're talking about is when you start out is not knowing when you're done. <coughs> um, I would be pleased to take any kind of um, um, questions from the floor and uh, to play with you. Or have, I, or have I really just done a number on you so bad tonight that, that you don't feel like doing that? What have I done to you guys? <laughs> Your voice is so beautiful. You're really happy here. Well, thank you. It's all done with mirrors, I swear. <clears throat> I used to... Um, Always oh, a compliment. You don't want to hear it. <laughs> Does anyone have a, 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 anything else? Well, I mean, you speak so often of uh, the life force, uh, and you separate it all the time from anything that's metaphysical. It's reality. I think we. You're all of one mind. How do you distinguish what I'm, the life force from metaphysics? Um, uh, I, I feel a certain resistance in answering you, which I'll, I'll just speak to in another way, okay? You'll have to be content with this, because I have the microphone and you don't. <laughs> the life force is your knowing. And you know different things in different ways at different times. Sometimes your knowing is a beautiful realization. And when you share that and allow other people to see the magic of your integration of reality, 
which is all you are. Each of us integrates reality according to our needs and our openness. You lose your identity for a moment with that person and also you are no longer lonely. I know that doesn't really answer it, but it's what I'm thinking. So the life force needs to be answered by being shared at its most open way, whether, whether that's in language, sharing feelings, being loving, or creating out of the essence of your most uncluttered uh, self. You, you can have another callback. They do that at the presidential meetings. You can too. Um, I was, I gave a lecture at, at a church about three weeks ago, and an, uh, a, a girl from Bombay came up to me and said, Dr. Viscott, <laughs> I am having forever a problem in coming to terms with my spiritual self and my practical self. Can you give me any, any advice? And I said, be more practical. She thought I was a guru. It was great. <laughs> okay. But that's basically what it is. Everything must come from usage and practicality, simplicity and honesty. If it works, stick it in. Um, if it doesn't work, remove it. What else? I mean, you know, it's your knowing that's going to be the ultimate thing. Um, for instance, when Haydn, after he had been kicked out of the um, uh, Vienna Choir Boys School for being the, uh, at the personal request of Empress Teresa, because she considered him incorrigible, and he was, he was a bumpkin, he uh, decided that he was going to get a job as a composer in Vienna. And he figured that since he was going to write music, he might as well write all music for every one of the parts. So he'd have a page where there'd be 16 instruments. Every single instrument was playing <laughs> every single moment of the piece. Because he figures you're paying them good money, they should work. <laughs> I swear this is the true. And then he, he, he had his first teacher who, who taught him the lesson of sparsity, necessity, letting the idea choose its accompanying, uh, its own accompaniment and its friends, and relying on simplicity. And isn't that the lesson you, you have to learn all the time? It's the telling detail, the simple stroke, the, the, the thought that conveys all of the feeling without having to show off how well you conveyed the thought. Um, it's like that wonderful thing in Budenbrooks where um, she asks, her, her father says, you will be married in uh, three months to so-and-so. Do you have any questions? And, 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 and Man solves the, solves the problem of, 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 of conveying her innocence in the most wonderful way. She looks around and she says, I have one question, Father. And he says, well, what is it? He says, does this mean, can I still have hot chocolate every morning? <laughs> so our ability to create detail must ultimately stem from our own ability to see the message contained in the simplicity around us. But most of us are terrified of hearing things because we're afraid of what we must do in response to it. You just have to listen. People are going to tell you everything. Your example is life. Your hearing and reporting and using another form is your art form, if you're writing. And reality is your friend. The truth is your guide. And your feelings, well, they're the energy that, that, that make you do this thing, aren't they? I mean, who wants to die, right? 
Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that why we get blocked? Because we figure, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And you will. But it only takes one quatrain to make it over the centuries, they tell me. <laughs> yes? The question was one of those obvious questions that you can't believe that someone's going to ask you. Do I believe that I'm psychic? What do you think this is? <laughs> All psychic is, is getting the junk out of the way of knowing. You are too. And you are, all you have to do is claim it. It's not that you have to appear on, on uh, some show and uh, get into distant viewing or all those... Th no tricks, please. You're psychic if you can look over at your kid and know the kid is hurting. No one said anything, right? How many times have you known who was on the phone by the ring? Everybody, all the time. And, and what you need to know is the psychic energy, the creative energy, the force of life. Well, let's take a look at it. We are all part of the same miracle. Have you ever seen a body of someone you've known in death that you knew in life? You look at it. Something's missing. I mean, it's got absolutely everything. Two seconds after death, it's, it's just a piece of meat. Let's get it out of here. Burn it. You know, stick it in box, bury it, go away. It's not them. Where did they go? What is the they that's there? The they that's there is the you that's there. I'm addressing you, not the person whose body that is. And the you that I address, I can pull you out of that immediately. You can even feel it differently when I talk to you like this, can't you? I'm talking to you, the person who lives in your body, who has that sense about yourself. That sense, that knowing, that being you, unadorned by every day, is the psychic self that's been here for centuries. You don't have memory of it. You may think you do. You may have all this sort of thing. But basically, it's the, it's the force of love within you that feels familiar, that seeks to be familiar. You think it's a recollection from your childhood. It's not that at all. It's merely the polarity of your force seeking expression and communication and to be answered. That is the psychic energy that lives within all of us. It's great. What kind of environment did your family provide you that you feel is important in contributing to your understanding of life? What kind of a family did my family provide for me, darling? Yeah, how much time do you have? When I was born, my father's words were, my doctor is born today. I swear that's the truth. My father, Jewish? <laughs> I, I wrote the book. <laughs> Jewish. If this ain't Jewish, sweetheart, nothing is Jewish. And um, I grew up in an atmosphere where my father wanted me to be a doctor. That's, that's, that's it, be a doctor. And anything else I did was undermined. It was undermined. I was writing plays and poetry in the second grade. What's, the kid, what's he going to do with that, right? I got into English honors at Dartmouth. Why didn't you major in chemistry? You know, you know? When I went into psychiatry, he used to nag my ex-wife, uh, is he ever going to go into real, back into real medicine? 
You know, the, the, I mean, that's the environment, totally non-supportive. And in his whole life, my father never praised anything I ever did and was um, um, very insecure and very threatened by this. My mother um, wrote, read Baudelaire to me. I could speak French, Yiddish, German, and English before I was four years old and, and read poetry and, and Latin. We got a, I knew Virgo, Virgil, Virgo. service, huh? Um, I had a knowing that was awakened in me by a feeling. It was the most powerful group of experiences uh, that I've... There were moments when I, when I stood reading something that was beautiful where I would be just bathed in an electricity within me that I, I, that could not be denied. I, I was very, very obstinate. I, used, I had allergy. And they used to tr drag me every Saturday morning. Everyone else was playing baseball. Not that I wanted to play baseball, but I didn't want to get over, go to a shot. And we used to go by the Boston New England Conservatory of Music, and as we'd go by, there'd be woodwinds playing. And my sister... That's another one. My, <laughs> my sister was... I was her responsibility. I, she still thinks I owe her for this. <laughs> we would go by the fence of the, the New England Conservatory and I would wrap my arms and legs into the uh, iron fence and, and clasp my hands and she couldn't get me out until the music stopped. Um, so that was an enormous pull on me. And, and my family used to drag me to the art museum. They used to drag me. And there was a man in the art museum, see, a man. It was a statue of King Mycerinus. My Serenus, I forget what dynasty, but My Serenus was a very, very powerful, overwhelming force in my life. I used to look at that power in the man's alabaster hands, and I used to, I used to be at one. I, I, it was like the pines and fountains of Rome or something going off all around me. I was in ancient Egypt. I could just, I was part of that splendor and part of that, and it was just the most awe-inspiring thing, and I would be told a little bit about it. And the other part of the museum that, I, that we would stand in front of all the time was that they had a marvelous circle of Impressionist paintings, Monet's and Renoir's, you know, investment tools, they call them out here. <laughs> and, um, oh, I'm not that cynical. And I used to stare at them for hours, those haystacks with the light coming off of it. Where did he see that from? And you know, when you're three years old, and before you've been tainted, you see the light as well. Before someone has told you that things have a certain shape, you see auras around them. So I started looking for them. And to this day, when I think of where my home was when I was a child, and I go back to memories, I'm not sure whether the the fisherman's cottage of Monet on the, on the Côte d'Azur was where I lived or not. I mean, I'm so, the memories are so pristine and back that my father was Monet, okay? My Serenus was a gift to me of someone who was strong and protecting. I adopted everything that was good. I don't know, I was just sort of open to that. And um, I had an illumination when I was 14, which was um, a, uh, an incredible experience uh, where um, I'll just share it with you for a moment and it changed my life completely 
I had been talking with a friend, and um, it was two o'clock in the morning. He drove off. It was late April. It was a warm evening. There wasn't a there wasn't a moon out, and I was crossing the street, and all of a sudden, I was a, I'm in a, within a presence. I'm only going to tell you what I'm not going to try to explain it to you. I'm just going to relate it to you. I was within a presence, and all around me was energy made visible. I could see, I could see the energy on every leaf of every tree, of every blade of grass. I had the knowing focus of every single piece of energy. I could keep in my mind at once a hundred million aspects of nature and was aware of all of them at once and I could feel on me the presence of each star as a sun in its own right and know what part of it was acting on me. It was the most overwhelming experience and I had a complete loss of self and a sensation of enormous light with a feeling that I, I can only describe one word of love unbounded unbound, and boundless ever growing ever becoming me lost in it and suddenly aware of what infinity was by perceiving it by being it losing self and that lasted about 15 minutes and when it closed I was not the same and I remember sitting up the entire night electric transported changed it did not have an identity. It was without personality. It had about it a knowing which I already had, but didn't know I had. And somehow or other, everything fit in. Although I couldn't understand afterwards or hold the pieces together, but I had the knowing of the fitting in. And that became a source of a belief. And my whole life object is to get people even though they haven't experienced that, to trust in the knowing that unifies everything that we're doing together, to make our life of love be shared so that we can build whatever it is we are supposed to be unified by into a reality that manifests each of our beings as one. just tell you you have it. And all you have to learn is how to be free in letting go of it. If you try to hold on to it and want it to be perfect, it won't happen because it's not perfect. It's process. If you let it come through you and don't judge it, but let it evolve with you, as you become more free in letting go of it, then it reaches its fullest state. But don't ever doubt whether you have it. That's the wrong focus. The focus is how do you get out of the way of it so it can have you. Do you identify this experience you just described with any religious dogma? None. I have never believed. 
Do I identify that experience with any religious dogma? The answer was no, I, did, I have never believed. I think each of us is a capsule of the energy which, when we're taken all together, we are what we call God. Therefore, we're all precious in that, and we, we diminish our concept of whatever it is that is God by not permitting each of us the fullest expression of that energy to be realized. In that better world, we'll all be that best, and maybe it won't co happen completely, but it only needs to happen a little bit more to make the right thing happen so that we're able to, at some future time, a thousand years down the, a thousand years down the ages for that to happen. Our job is to make it possible for it to happen, not to be so sure that we have to usher it in. Um, the Viscott Method, my latest book, Houghton Mifflin, $16.95. <laughs> you see how we go from the sublime to the ridiculous. It's wonderful. But it's part, of the, it's part of the same show. That took seven years to write. It took two, two years in the actual writing and uh, about 3,500 pages of attempts, none of which were ever looked at again until the real thing happened. I just kept on writing it and writing it and writing it. I showed it to Michael Corder three times who said, this is not a book. He's right, it's not a book, it's a process. But we can't ask Michael Corder to understand things like that. Shout, whoever, boy, girl, boy, girl. Because we're home again. Why do we cry at the recognition of some truth? And I said, because we're home again. Do you ever see the soldiers being reunited from, from coming back off the ships? You don't want to cry? Of course, we're safe, it's okay again. Each of us is in that, and that's why we cry, because we love each other. That's what we have to remember, we do love each other. I My am. instinct was right, and you were, and I thank you. Thank you for being there. Would, why am I not writing music? Oh, because that would mean I would have to stop everything else. I'd have to leave the air. I could not do that. I mean, that's... I mean, I wrote an opera uh, some years ago, I, and I just... I had to do... It was uh, 14, 16 hours a day, six days a week, and I slept on the seventh day. <laughs> no, it's, it, it, I can't be that selfish. And it isn't that good, if you really want to know the truth. It just isn't that good. You want to know? There. The, although I, I must admit, it, making the parts work and working through the keys and working out harmonies and working out kind of, is wonderful. God, it's... A, but it's not, not in this lifetime. How do you make your mind go blank? 
Well, what I did just before I came up here, and what I do before I go on the on the on the program, is um, I've always been a meditator. Not that I have ever had contact with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi <laughs> and his haircut. <laughs> and some of you had. Do I have a life before this time? Let me finish with, with him first. <laughs> Can you believe where we are tonight? We're talking about process. She wants to know my psychic. This one wants to know that. Wait, everyone will get a chance. What a bunch. Uh, how do you make your mind go blank? Is that a personal problem? Okay, I'll, I'll be charitable. Okay, I, I heard all of that. Um, to make my mind go blank, and I'll do it right in front of you, I just take my hand and I focus my own. And I'm clear. There's no emotion. Everything has been... I'm transported. I can focus on anything else. What I do is a blue spot immediately becomes, comes in front of me with a little light inside of it. I arrest the light. I transport myself through it. I, it's just something that I've been doing since childhood. I didn't even know what I was doing. My mother used to report that she would go into the nursery six, seven times a day. She was a nervous wreck. <laughs> thinking I had died because I slept like a boy. I, 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 I sleep like a dead person. It's and, and if you ever have the privilege of watching me sleep, you'll think I've died too. <laughs> so the, before you, I, I know you're there. I know you're there. Before you, before you close the box on me, wake. Try to wake me up one more time. <laughs> the the whole thing I'm sharing with you. I don't know why that's so funny. The whole thing I'm sharing with you is that the sense of energy being clear, of your just, be, the place you go to when you make your mind blank is behind perceiving and in front of memory. That's the best description I can give of it, and that's where you have to get to. You get there by just, you, you, you can learn all the meditation techniques. Basically, the simplest technique in the world is to say the words I am in your head over and over and over again and expect a blue light to appear behind your eyes. And when it does, give into it and try to float through it. And in that totally visual thing on that inner light, your mind will go completely blank. And when you master the knack of it, you can do it in about one second in any situation. And you can gain, just by being in that total egoless self, you become very brave with the truth and you can say anything and do anything. And I, I do it in the morning before I write um, and, uh, or whenever I need to focus and I can just wash out any situation, any, almost any, anything instantly. I don't think so, was the answer to your question. Hold on, we're, get, we're, getting, we're getting all kinds of weirdos talking up now. You have, do, you, do you want to know more about that? The question was, have I been here before? I have always been here. I have never left. My energy is an energy that has lived since the beginning of energy. Where else would it come from? It was not invented new. 
It will go someplace when I die. It will continue to be. I don't know where it was before now, but it has always been. And so has yours. And what you do is, in this particular time, and this is a manifestation, you are a manifestation. You don't know how long this life form is. You think it's years, but what is that? You don't know. But you're here right now, and you are aware of being here, and that awareness of being here is not only the prerogative, but the obligation to manifest the being in a way that lives on. Something besides a tombstone is appropriate. Okay? We are conduits of energy, some of us, produce life that goes from one generation to another. Some of us are merely the appreciative audience that frames some energy that has been before and gives it courage. Some of us preserve, some of us restore, some of us create anew. But we all have meaning if we're all uh, um, participants in that grand process and show reverence to it. I think Schweitzer had the right idea. Your question. Where are what? The hackles rose? Did I ever have an ESP experience where the hackles rose in the back of my head? Hackles rose. It sounds like a play with Anthony Quinn in it, doesn't it? The hackles rose. I don't know. I, they've, it's a part of life. Why? I just accept it all as it is. What is what's the difference? It's there. I mean, don't be taken by it. Don't resist it. It's just part of life. It's part of being. It's not a big deal. Uh, you don't write the inquire every time you, it happens. <laughs> they'll, and, and if you do, they'll print the wrong story anyhow. Yeah. Yes? Um, were you angry with your father for frustrating you? And if you were, how did you forgive him? I was very angry at my father for frustrating me. And I thought him a fool. And I remember once screaming at him after a fight. It is a tale full of sound and fury told by an idiot signifying nothing. And, and my mother, who recognized where that came from, got very angry at me, thinking I had abused the privilege. And of course I did. But we fought it out. And after the years, and the, he mellowed and all this sort of thing. We, we, we were very close in a lot of other ways. Um, we forgave each other. And he still found it difficult to be proud of me to my face because it was difficult for him to admit that he hadn't become the physician he wanted. He, he, he used to say to me, in my day, uh, Jewish, Jewish boys weren't getting into medical school. I said, Dad, all my professors are your age and they're all Jewish. How did they do it? Don't talk back to me like that. <laughs> and um, he, only he only said one thing to me in his entire life. And, and I'll try to say it without breaking down in front of you, but I'm perfectly capable of doing that. He did in my presence, though not directly to my face, say to my mother, says, well, one thing we can always say about David, he has a heart of gold. Aww. So that he really understood, although he, he had trouble dealing with any other part of me except my feeling part. <laughs> and he... It was very strange, you know, I think. He also was one of my best audiences for my humor. I could crack my dad up. As a matter of fact, all my humor is derived from keeping my father at bay. <laughs> <laughs> I have more accents 
<laughs> I mean, when he some because I was totally on top. I was, you know, I was, I was more evolved than him very, very soon. He would come flying at me for something I would do, and he was about to go on me, and I'd say, "What is this you're coming at me for?" And I'd crack him up, and I would just walk away, and he would forget why he was attacking. And by then, I was at a safe enough distance. So I, I mean, I, I, I learned how to figure out people very quickly. I heard that. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm starting a center for what I call natural therapy. I do therapy in a, uh, a unique way, I think. I see people for four visits only. Each visit is two hours long, and each visit is put on cassette. The person who sees me gets a copy of the cassette to take home and instructions for replaying the tape of the session because the same defenses that get in the way of you working through problems also interfere with your memory of the session. So most of what happens in therapy is lost and is wasted. Also, if you're a therapist, you burn out because you're repeating the same stuff over and over again and you get hoarse and, um, and, and sick of hammering away and you end up holding people longer than you should merely because finally you get them working and you don't know what to do with it and it's full of problems. So what I, what I did is I devised a method where I give a person stepwise instructions for replaying the tapes, having them uncover their dishonesties, the source of their pain, and their avoidance patterns, and whatever else their diagnosis suggests. And in four sessions, which are shaped whenever the person wants to come, some people come once, some people come twice, some people come three times, some people take two years to do the four sessions, I have one person who's taken three. Um, people shape their own therapy, and I call it, the process is called natural therapy because there is a natural tendency in everyone to grow and be better and for, for, for personal health. And what I try to tap is your own desire to make yourself better and heal yourself and focus your energy into taking over that predominant role, eliminating dependency and um, um, transference problems and allowing you to get in and out as quickly as possible. And the center in Sherman Oaks is the first uh, center in LA and we're going to be opening them up all around the country, training people and developing a whole new, a whole new theory of psychology based on the um, feeling cycle that I developed and uh, make it possible for psychotherapy to be delivered in very intense um, and problem-directed ways and a lot of focus on the creative process incidentally. So that's, that's the plan. Love them. Love them. What else is there? If it's not, con if it's if love that's not it's not unconditional isn't love. Look to yourself. It's not your child. That you, I mean, you, you're trying to repair the unsolved parts of your own life by making your child take on a shape approaching perfection that you can't reach yourself. By trying harder to be better. And, and not hating yourself for not being better. Because it's the self-hatred that you don't want to face that you then try to um, um, compensate for by making a child bear the extra burden of carrying your banner into the world and God knows they don't wave as well when someone else is holding the flag upside down. <laughs> and, and especially when you want to wave your own.
Um, I came from a long line of atheists, and um, the only one who was Jewish in the family uh, who ever did anything was my grandfather, and he used to go to temple and fall asleep. <laughs> but he went to an Orthodox temple and fell asleep, because his friends were Orthodox. And um, um, they had, I, I mean, I've, I, I've studied religion and all that sort of thing, but it's, it's, it's not that it's Jewish. That's really not true. I mean, how aware am I that it's Jewish? Must, uh, may, I, may I differ with you? I think it's us. We. I think being Jewish is the great metaphor for, uh, if you want to talk about why it's chosen, we're all the chosen people. I mean, in that universe that's 20 billion light years across, there is us and other forms, and we are chosen to be here. So we are here, and we are all resplendent in the glory of being. And we are flawed, and we have feelings that get in the way of our being good and loving, and that makes us all Jewish. <laughs> You're not happy with that. Yes. What is your favorite thing that you've written? The favorite thing that I've written? <sighs> the thing I'm going to write next. I don't read what I've written. I, I, uh, I don't, it's just too, I mean, I don't want to go through it, if you want to know what I mean. I mean, I can always think of things to add, and it's enough. We'll go do that later. This is the next thing that I'm going to write, really. Um, I love Dorchester Boy. And none of you know about it because you haven't seen it. It only sold 8,500 copies. And, but it was about growing up and me and my father in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And the opening quote was, my doctor was born today. But, but, that, that, but, that, but that's, that's, as a matter of fact, that will probably be reprinted soon. I, I found out this week that the making of a psychiatrist, folks, will be reprinted by pocketbooks in the spring. So that's nice to know that you'll be able to read that again because that was another one of my favorites, too. Yeah, that's they're all they're all out. Um, they're they're redistributing all my books this because of this radio show. They are redistributing all of my works. Isn't that terrific? I'm thrilled. You try to establish a cash flow, <laughs> and maybe you don't have to struggle all the time. You know, it's always it's, it's always it's always painful. I mean, we all cannot be Robin Cook and Harold Robbins. Yes. Um, not really. I guess when it, there's a law, I mean, I, you know, uh, you have to be generous because uh, I don't, uh, I, I'm not unmindful of the fact that people want to give back and not to allow them to do that is, is hurtful and it's wonderful to have that. Um, I don't like it being made a big thing out of. I mean, I, I, I'm, I really just like to be regular and... Um, to pinch tomatoes in the supermarket and, and, and not be anything but this. I don't want to be anything but this, ever. This is, I'm perfect right now. And if I want to be more, and I was, felt good about this years ago. I'm, I need nothing more to be complete. Just let me alone, I'll be happy. And if I'm permitted to do my work and write and, and to create things that help other people, uh, I'm happy doing that. But I need to do that to be happy. It's just that it's, it comes through and it seems so good, why waste it, right? I mean, really, that's about it. And, you know, I thought it would be different when I got here, but uh, it's, it's just better. You don't feel so desperate. You can get very desperate. You know about that? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Everyone goes, yes, I know. Well, you know, <clears throat> the question is, how do you deal with rejection? Well, f first of all, you've been hurt. You have to accept the fact that it hurts. You have to see that it's someone's valid judgment. That doesn't mean you're bad. It just means that they saw something. If in the light of the rejection, you are now able, through the self-doubt that's been kindled, to see something that can be better, accept that new illumination and permit it to guide you through reaching a higher level. But don't be so much guided by other people's criticism because they cr criticize who cannot create. And be, be content in the fact that you're, that you're in process and that the process of creating the single work is not really important because you're not really important. If you can give in to that, then you can get over the problem. Your job is to make the next work and to make this thing the best. It didn't work. It didn't work, so there's a problem in the thing. So what is the problem in the thing? Let's take a look at it. Be completely dispassionate about it. It says in the Bhavahad Gita, do your duty dispassionately. And when you create, you're creating the world. And I mean, if George Burns, as God, can tell you that we, he made the pit and the avocado too big, you can admit that you made something wrong in the book. <laughs> and that's not being too Jewish, I hope. I just felt, how, why did I decide writing right out of the music? I still compose. I, I still compose every day. I improvise at the piano, I play the clarinet, uh, I'm even thinking of cutting an album of the Brahms sonatas for clarinet and piano and some other things. I mean, I'm, I, that's my life, I still do that. You don't know about it because it's none of your business. But, <laughs> uh, but I'm not planning to make a living at it. I mean, I'd love to sing for a living, but if you heard me, uh, you know, listen, give the kid a break. Uh,